Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 to 34. Uh, it's up here, but it's also in your bulletin, so uh, you can follow along as I read it aloud. This is the word of the Lord. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is a lamp of the body, so if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food, and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow, nor reap, nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, let's all pray for a brief moment as we uh, begin. God, we thank you for your word. And um, uh, I just recall a lot of the medievals um, saw three things that were transcended. Uh, truth, goodness, and beauty. And we know that um, uh, truth can certainly be found in your word, that your word is truth. And uh, we know that a lot of goodness comes out of it. But we also pray that we would see the beauty of it. And even when it comes to things like our money, our possessions, our anxieties related to them, uh, that we would see the beauty of, of uh, your word revealed to us, the beauty of Christ, the beauty of your gospel, uh, the beauty of uh, what Jesus has done. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We are spending a season reflecting on the topic of fear, and the reason we're doing that is because fear is something that I think uh, affects us all, whether we know it or not. It plays a big role in our lives, and you know, for many of us, it may drive many of our decisions and what we do. And as much as we would like to never have any kind of fears, I think one of the things that fears can do is they really illuminate, or they're like a window into our hearts, and they show us what is it that our hearts are really after? What is it that our hearts are desiring? And of course, desire itself is not a bad thing, but uh, desire, when desire becomes an ultimate thing, when it becomes our master, to use the words of Jesus, then it becomes a bad thing because we become slaves to these desires. And what I want to do today is I want to look at our fears as it relates to our money and as it relates to our possessions. Now, there was a, a piece that came out in the New York Times a couple years ago, and you know I've mentioned it before because it was just uh, one of those pieces that I remember so vividly, but it was written by this guy named Sam Polk. And Sam Polk uh, used to be in finance. I think he was a derivatives trader, and he made a ton of money, and he wrote this article talking about his addiction to wealth. And 
the way he looks at his desire for wealth is uh, he looks at it through the lens of addiction because he did struggle with addiction with like drugs and substances. And he was like, there's kind of a parallel between what I experienced when I was addicted to drugs and other kinds of substances to my addiction to money. And he begins the article with a statement that probably seems outlandish to the average person, but it seemed completely normal to him at the time. And he says this, in my last year on Wall Street, my bonus was $3.6 million. And I was angry because it wasn't big enough. I was 30 years old, had no children to raise, no debts to pay, no philanthropic goal in mind. I wanted more money for exactly the same reason an alcoholic needs another drink. I was addicted. Interesting, right? Now, I, I don't think most people usually associate things like money with addiction because for most people, desiring more money is kind of a given, right? Nobody challenges that. Everybody wants more money. Everybody wants a nicer place to live. Everybody wants to be able to go to these nice restaurants. Everybody wants to go to these nice places to travel. Everybody wants to buy nice clothes and get maybe the latest gadgets. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. But when want turns into need and we start to say, I need money because I need these things, that's probably a sign that we desire money and possessions too much. Sam Polk, he eventually left his career uh, because his conclusion was he was addicted to wealth. And not only he didn't like the person he became, his girlfriend didn't like the person he became. And so he left. But he also reflects upon that year where he left his career and left the industry. And listen to his words. He says this, despite my realizations, it was incredibly difficult to leave. I was terrified of running out of money and of foregoing future bonuses. More than anything, I was afraid that five or 10 years down the road, I'd feel like an idiot for walking away from my one chance to be really important. That first year was really hard. I went through what I can only describe as withdrawal, waking up at nights, panicked about running out of money, scouring the headlines to see which of my old coworkers had gotten promoted. Interesting, right? How he describes that experience. I was terrified, I was afraid, I woke up at night panicked. Now, I'm going to guess most of us don't necessarily relate to his desire for more than $3.6 million in a bonus, although we are in New York, so maybe, right? But I do think most of us, if not all of us, can relate to the fears that he experienced as it related to his uh, financial circumstance and his financial situation. You see, when money was his master, that's when fear came out. He was afraid that he wouldn't have enough, and not having enough would ultimately ruin his life. Now, have you ever experienced something similar to that? And maybe it looked different. Maybe the intensity of it was different. But have you ever been anxious about money? I'm sure you have. I have. <clears throat> you know, when my wife and I, we first got married almost 10 years ago, we've been at this church uh, as long as, right, the, the actually first weekend, the weekend that we got married, we started coming to this church. So we got married on Saturday, and then that Sunday we started coming here. So our anniversary for both this church and uh, our marriage is the same, basically. And, uh, you know, when we were engaged, we, we decided uh, to come here and to serve this church. And so during our engagement, we were, like, looking for a place to live. And uh, so we, I don't know if any of you know this, but we started in Brooklyn, and we looked at studio apartments in Brooklyn. And if I remember correctly, like, tiny studio apartments in Brooklyn at the time, they probably were, like, around $1,200 to $1,500 per month. And we came from... Northeast Philadelphia, 
where the rental prices during our seminary years for like a two or three bedroom apartment was like seven to eight hundred dollars a month and we were splitting it between roommates not we weren't living together right we had separate roommates but we were splitting it uh, between different roommates so personally i was paying about two to three hundred dollars a month in rent during my years in seminary to go from that to go to Brooklyn prices, we were like shocked. We were like, oh my goodness, how are we gonna actually serve uh, New York when it's so expensive to live here? Not only that, we decided to come here. Uh, well, when we decided to come here, uh, we were in, the country was in the midst of an uh, economic downturn, right? It was a financial crisis. People were getting laid off. My wife is a teacher, so there was a hiring freeze at public schools, so she couldn't find a job in public schools, so she had to apply to private schools. I was coming out of seminary, and I was starting as an intern here, but in order to, you know, get by and pay the bills, uh, I had to find a full-time job as well. And at the time, I really doubted whether I could find any kind of work or any kind of job because, again, the economy was bad, but also I went to seminary. And what marketable skills, job skills does seminary really give you? Nothing, right? So I was like, how am I going to find a job? And I remember that period being a really anxious time I, I don't think my wife was actually that anxious, but I was very <laughs> anxious during that time, and I didn't know if we would make enough money. And as I look back, uh, God did provide for, for us in some really unique ways through uh, the generosity of friends and family and uh, through other means, and there's so many examples of this, but let me just give you one example, and it's an example I haven't actually shared with anybody. Uh, we are, uh, we're not going to be here for the next two Sundays because we're traveling to Asia, and uh, while we're in Asia, I'm going to go to Tokyo uh, for one night. And I'm going to visit uh, two friends, one who's a missionary, one who's a pastor planting a church in Tokyo. Uh, this friend who's planting a church in Tokyo, he, uh, you know, he's a friend I made in seminary. He's one of my best friends. And during that first year, uh, he just randomly all of a sudden started sending uh, sending me checks, right? So he would write a check and he'd mail it, and I would get the mail. I'm like, what the heck is this, right? And I would open it, and it's like a check for like a couple hundred dollars. So I, I like, you know, I'm emailing him. I'm like, why are you sending me a check? And he was like, well, uh, you know, I don't really know where to uh, tithe my money yet, and, uh, you know, I feel like um, God wants me to send it to you, right? I feel like I should send it to you. And I was like, oh, no, 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 you don't have to. We're okay. He's like, no, no, I feel like I should send it to you, <laughs> right? That's just one tiny example of uh, our early years coming to New York. And there was actually a lot of examples of generosity. And again, this is not like common typical stuff, right? This is like uh, stuff that you wouldn't really expect. <laughs> it's not the ordinary. And I really do think God was orchestrating it. And this is how my family interprets it. God really wanted us to be here and to serve uh, the people in New York because he provided for us in many ways. I eventually did find a job. I think that itself was a miracle. How did I, uh, coming out with the skills of uh, exegesis, <laughs> Greek and Hebrew, how did I find a job? But I, I found a job too. So I, I think the fact that we were here, again, was a way that God provided for us and opened, us, opened up a way for us to serve here. Now you would think after that experience, I wouldn't get anxious about money anymore, right? I've experienced not having much money. I've experienced God providing in that midst. But you know what? I still feel anxious when it comes to money. You start to want things, and those things uh, start to things that you, those things start to turn into things that you think you need. You start having children, and you think your children need certain things. 
As you get older, you start to worry about your retirement and how you're going to live in your retirement. Maybe you start to worry about your kids and, oh, are, are my kids going to find a job and be financially secure? The thing about worrying about money is that it doesn't really matter whether you're rich or poor, but there's always something to worry about. When you're poor, you're worried about not having enough money. When you're rich, you might be worried about not having enough money, but as Sam Polk says in the article, the biggest fear that he saw in his industry was the fear of losing money. And so you always have that worry and that anxiety and that fear as well. And that's what we have to understand about our anxieties and fears as it relates to our money and to our possessions, that it's not really based upon our financial circumstances, but ultimately what it comes down to is the disposition of our hearts. Isn't that what Jesus says in this passage? After he tells people, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, he says in verse 21, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Money is actually a morally neutral thing. It serves a practical purpose. What makes money dangerous is when our hearts make it our ultimate treasure. That's when money becomes dangerous. When it becomes our ultimate desire, that's when it becomes our master. And Jesus says, you can't serve two masters. You can't serve both God and money. You will either end up loving the one at the expense of the other. There's this missionary <clears throat> some of us got to know during the, the summer prayer trips. And he was telling a story about a time where he felt like God was calling him to be a missionary. And he was living in the States at the time. He had a wife. He had kids. And he felt like God wanted him to give away their entire savings, right? So he had a savings account and save money. He's like, I felt like God wanted us to give our entire savings away, 100% of it. Can you imagine that? After he made that commitment, you know what happened? He got scared, right? He got nervous. So he was like, well, maybe I'll give 50% now, and then gradually I'll give the rest of the 50% later. That Sunday, he says, at church, the preacher gave a message, and the message says, you have to give Jesus 100%, not 20%, not 50%. And he's like, I felt like God was speaking to me and rebuking me, and he was pricked in heart, and he repented, and he ended up giving away his entire savings. Now, the part of his story that really resonated with me was when he talked about how, he, I guess he went to some, like, department store or toy store with his kids, and his kids wanted to buy some toys, but they didn't have any money to buy his kids toys. And so he and his wife are looking at each other and they're kind of like tearing up because they feel so sad that they can't buy their kids these toys anymore. As a parent, that like broke my heart, right? That made me so uh, sad. And that's something that I think would uh, probably resonate with any of you who are parents as well. But you know what? Many years later, as he's reflecting upon that time, he said that was a really important part of growing in his faith. And that was a really important part of his preparation as a missionary because you know what? Satan is going to use the fear and anxiety around money, around possessions, uh, to tempt believers all the time. And if you are not free from that kind of fear, then you will ultimately become a slave to it. You're going to make decisions based on it. And when it comes down to it, if God wants you to do one thing, but financial security is on the other side. If you're a slave to money, you're going to choose financial security all the time. Now, I do know and I do recognize maybe this missionary's actions seem a little extreme to some of us, but I do think it illustrates really what Jesus says here. Can't serve God and money. It's either God or it's money. If you try to serve both, eventually what's going to happen is your true master will come out, which 
probably be money, and it will enslave you and control you with a mix of fear and anxieties. Now, if you look at what Jesus says, starting in verse 25, he says, do not be anxious about your life. Why? First, he says, look at the birds of the air. Uh, you know, the Greek word translated as look is probably a little bit stronger um, than just look, but it really means consider it, ponder it, really give serious thought to it. When you look at the birds of the air, think about it. They neither sow nor reap nor gather in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Look at the lilies. When you see the li lilies, consider this. They neither toil nor spin, and yet God clothes the grass of the field. What he's pointing out is that God is ultimately the one who provides, even for these insignificant birds and lilies. How much more, then, is he going to provide for you? Now, in theology, that's called the providence of God. And what that basically means is God provides. He's in control. He not only creates the world that you, we are a part of, but he sustains the world that we are a part of. And if God takes care of the birds of the air, how much more will he take care of you? Are you not of more value than they? You know what anxiety and worry tells us about ourselves? It says this. Uh, either we don't believe that God really is in control, or we really don't believe that God cares for us, right? One of those two things, or maybe both, that we deny, we doubt in our hearts. Anxiety is our way of trying to take control by thinking, if I worry about all these details in my life and make sure everything goes the way it's supposed to go, then maybe I'll feel like I'm in control, right? You may say, well, isn't it natural to worry about these things? Isn't that just taking responsibility? But, you know, when do we really get anxious? Uh, verse 34, I think, gives us a hint when it says, Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. I think a lot of our anxieties probably revolve not around now and today, but they usually revolve around tomorrow. Isn't that the case? If you don't have food right now, then, yeah, take some steps and try to find something to eat. But our anxiety is usually about controlling tomorrow and making sure we have something to eat tomorrow. Why are you so anxious about where you live today? Is it because you don't think you'll be happy tomorrow? Is it because you don't think your place will be big enough tomorrow? Why are you so anxious about how much money you make today? Is it because you don't think it'll be enough for tomorrow? Why are you so anxious about your children? Is it because you don't think is it because something, you think something that you do today will impact them tomorrow and maybe ruin them tomorrow? Anxiety is worried about tomorrow, and therefore anxiety tries to take control of tomorrow. Anxiety says, even though God provided for me today, he may not provide for me tomorrow. But here's the thing about anxiety. You can be anxious, but it never leads to greater security because you can't control tomorrow just because you're anxious about it doesn't change the fact that it's still out of your control. And that's why Jesus says, and which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? Being anxious doesn't do anything to help you. All it does is make you reach for something that you cannot have, which is control, while pulling you further away from the direction in which you need to go. What's that direction? We find it in verse 33. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. 
Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God. Seek it. It's an imperative. It's a command. The reason I want to highlight this is because I think oftentimes we think anxiety is something that happens to us. I mentioned this, uh, I think, in the first sermon on the series. It certainly feels that way, right? There are times where we don't feel like we can control our anxiety. There are times where we just have these restless and sleepless nights because of our anxiety. And uh, I don't think listening to Bobby McFerrin's song, Don't Worry, Be Happy, uh, I don't think that really helps us, right? Uh, I don't think we can will, it doesn't feel like we can will ourselves and say, ah, Sam, stop being anxious about this. And then the anxiety goes away. If it were that easy, um, you know, I guess that whole industry <laughs> wouldn't be making so much money. But you know what's interesting about Jesus' solution to anxiety is he doesn't focus on our anxiety, right? He focuses on our desire. He focuses on that which we are seeking because anxiety is merely a symptom of what we desire in our hearts. He says, focus on what we are seeking because that's where anxiety ultimately finds its root. We are seeking something, and when there is a danger of not getting that which we are seeking in our hearts, that's when we start to get anxious. At this point, I want to go back to the beginning of the passage. And, you know, maybe at first it may seem hard to see the connection between not being anxious and seeking the kingdom. Maybe that verse kind of felt like it came out of nowhere. Uh, but, you know, if you read the entirety of the Sermon on the Mount, the whole thing is actually about the kingdom. That's what Jesus is talking about. It's the central focus in the Sermon on the Mount. And I think it's a central focus of this passage as well. You see, when he talks about uh, storing treasure in heaven or when he talks about the eye, ultimately what he's talking about is the kingdom of God. There is this either-or reality. There's two masters. There's two kingdoms. You either, uh, you either pledge your allegiance to one or the other, but it cannot be both. And we saw that with what Jesus says. You see that when Jesus says, lay up treasures in heaven, not on earth, either heaven or earth. We also see it when Jesus talks about the eye, and he says the eye is a lamp of the body. And I know in our translation it says, if your eye is healthy, right, if your eye is healthy, but the Greek word for healthy is actually the word for single. I think the better translation is this, if your eye is single, your whole body will be full of light. What is that saying? If your eye is focused on a single object, you see clearly. If you try to focus on two objects at the same time, your vision gets impaired. Jesus is saying this. If you want your body to be full of light, you need to have a single focus upon the kingdom of God. Seek first his kingdom. Now, what does that really mean? Seek first his kingdom. Uh, one commentator puts it like this. He says, it's a desire above all to enter into, submit to, and participate in the spreading of the news of the saving reign of Jesus Christ. And what that basically means, what he is saying there is that seeking the kingdom means having the desires of your hearts submit to the authority and the rule of Jesus Christ as our king. Every kingdom, and by kingdom, I'm using it loosely, every kingdom, uh, meaning any kind of realm where there's like a, a leader, a ruler, it could be a government, it could be a company, it could be a sports team. Every kingdom will have at least three, three elements. It'll have certain values, it'll have a certain amount of power, and it will yield a certain kind of result, right? Isn't that true? Bible outlines two kingdoms. There are the kingdoms of this world, and the values are usually what? Profit, 
power, success, recognition, victory, the power to implement those values, where is it found? Strength, whether it's military strength, economic strength, social capital, political capital, human ability. And the question is, what does that ultimately yield? Well, in the Sermon on the Mount, I think what Jesus seems to be saying is it yields destruction, self-righteousness, violence, hatred, anxiety, and worry. On the other hand, there is an alternate kingdom, and it comes with completely new values and a different kind of power, which yield a very different kind of result. Where do we find these values? You find them in the Beatitudes at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who are persecuted for Jesus' sake. And those aren't really values that you see lifted up in the kingdoms of the world, right? Naturally, we wouldn't see that as positive values. But you know what's even crazier? The implementation of those values wouldn't make sense according to the values of the kingdom of the world either. How are those values implemented? Not through strength, but through weakness, through suffering, and through defeat. What's unique about the kingdom that Jesus brings is he brings it through a cross, the very symbol of weakness and suffering and defeat. You know, when people were waiting for the Messiah you know the last thing they envisioned was the Messiah dying upon a cross? Why? Because that's weak. They expected a strong political leader to come and to bring Israel back into prominence again. That's usually how kingdoms achieve victory and assert their values. But that's not how Jesus did it. He came by way of incarnation as a weak and vulnerable baby. He didn't come as a mighty political ruler. He came as a son of a carpenter. He didn't recruit the top talents. He recruited fishermen and tax collectors. He didn't enter Jerusalem on a horse, but he entered on a lowly donkey. He didn't judge his enemies, although he has every authority to do that. But he sat under the judgment of men who rendered ultimately what was an unjust verdict. He did not respond when he was mocked, scorned, and spared bit on but he took it all in silence you see everything jesus did to bring his kingdom it's not the way the kingdom of the world would do it the ways of the world probably make more sense to us but compare the outcomes what is the result of the kingdom that jesus brings and you simply have to look at the other half of the beatitudes which i didn't read before Here's what the kingdom of God brings. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven.
Seek first the kingdom of God, not because, not because God will give you money and wealth and power. That's not ultimately the way God provides, although that's part of the way God may provide. But even Jesus says there is more to life than money and possessions. Life is more than what we eat. Life is more than uh, what we wear. What is life about? You could say it's about comfort and peace and security and a purpose and an identity. Most importantly, it's about seeing God, being a child of God, and belonging to the community of God as he ushers us into the kingdom of God. That's what life is about. That's what God provides in Christ. And you see, we get that. We get that through weakness, through humility, and through defeat of Jesus Christ as he hangs upon a cross. And so you see, when we surrender ourselves, when we seek first the kingdom of God, we bring ourselves under the reign of such a king who died for us. We discover the path to victory over our fears and our anxieties as well. That's the way. Seek first his kingdom. That's how you deal with your anxieties. If your heart is drawn to money and possessions and you feel like you're not making enough and you're so worried about it all the time, don't seek promotion. Don't seek career. <laughs> don't seek the right investments. Seek first the kingdom of God. Are you anxious? Are you anxious about money? You think you're lacking? Are you worried that you don't have enough? We're in New York, right? New York is a very expensive place to live. Most of us are probably worried about that, right? Well, here's the thing. You can worry. You can continue to worry about those things, and it probably won't change that much. Uh, maybe give you some more white hair, maybe some more baggy eyes, as my wife points out in my face. Or you can seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness and submit yourself to a king who loved you enough to die a humiliating death for you so that you might share in the blessings of the kingdom, which are far greater, far greater than money and possessions. And I think if we can do that, we will not be anxious anymore. And if we're not anxious anymore, here's the ultimate goal of this whole series. We will serve God more faithfully. Let's pray.